Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining us today for the Out of the Question podcast. And I am joined by Calcedon Vice President Martin Selbretti. And we're going to talk about the issue, do Christians expect too much from each other? Now, that may seem like an odd question, but it's been my observation, both experientially and by observation, that believers can agree with each other on a multitude and preponderance of issues, but then there becomes certain things where they have a conflict or they have a disagreement. And as a result of that 5% difference, they end up sort of shooting against each other rather than understanding that we're not all going to agree. So Martin, I asked you to join me today so that we could discuss this in a way that might be helpful to people going through this. Absolutely. It's a very good question. Uh, We certainly have uh, everyone on a different trajectory in their Christian walk. And so it's one thing to exhort one another. That is actually something that is a very biblical uh, category of action with our brethren. It's another thing to uh, disfellowship left and right for wrongs real or imagined uh, when there's so much call to unity in Scripture. So uh, these things need to be balanced, and uh, this is a an area of d- disagreement that has plagued the church since its early centuries. So we're going to spend some time in our discussion today uh, looking back on the history of this issue, what motivated it, um, because the fact of the matter is those who expect more of their fellow Christians are holding a high standard. No one's going to dispute that holiness and purity are good things, uh, that being rigorous in these areas is uh, not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's uh, it's generally a good thing. But we as Christians know how to turn a good thing into a bad thing by abuse of it, by uh, balancing it incorrectly. And in most cases, leaving grace out of it, out of the issue of holiness. And so what we'll find out is that when grace is depreciated, then human rules and human expectations rise to the surface. And uh, that attitude expands beyond the church. It extends into our culture, extends into the state. It extends into everywhere where human rules, human expectations start to come into play in an unhealthy way. So I think it's appropriate for us to uh, look to the question underneath this question, because there's a lot throbbing underneath that uh, needs to be exposed. All right. So you said, and I think correctly so, we should have high standards, but those standards need to come from Scripture rather than from the particular stage we are at our sanctification. So I think sometimes people have this idea that once they come to an understanding of things, everyone must agree with them, despite the fact, and I've been a Christian for decades now, I look back on some of my early opinions, and I realize that I've changed my opinion about my opinions. So is there something about seeking purity and and orthodoxy that sometimes can get distorted into assuming that we become the standard. Yeah, that happens when you adopt a censorious attitude. 
In other words, you're willing to uh, harshly criticize others for failing to adopt your point of view. The way it was couched in the uh, third and fourth, fifth centuries when this was happening was that purity was equated with harshness. The more harsh a pastor was in attacking folks that were not quite up to snuff, the more pure and holy he was. And so once you go down this path, then grace never factors in because there's no place for it, because we've said holiness is the only thing that matters. What gets lost in the shuffle is Christ's own attitude toward this, which is expressed in Isaiah 42, that he will not uh, uh, break a bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. In other words, he's very gentle in bringing people along and patient. Uh, these things disappear when you become harsh and demanding of others. So, And also, like you said, Andrea, it presumes that I am now the yardstick. I have the authority to go after others and uh, troll them and attack them on Facebook, uh, create websites listing all their evils so that I can show how publicly righteous I am by attacking others. This is holiness by negation, and I'm afraid that there's more to it than just pointing out weeds or errors. That's all it took. Satan did a very good job of this, even with Job, pointing out weaknesses in God's uh, support for Job. Uh, that's not the route to go. I think the, the Messiah had a much better picture of it, and that's what we need to emulate. We need to factor grace in. Dr. Restoni said it well when he said, uh, we have to recognize that Christians sin and they repent, and that becomes a big deal. And when it's a matter of doctrinal issues, uh, we do not yet uh, see the whole truth, and that's kind of a very arrogant approach. However, if you're loud, pound the podium, shout, as they say, you can make the case that you're right and they're horribly wrong, and they need to knuckle under to your position. By the way, this attitude goes far beyond just doctrinal issues. It goes, for example, uh, the way it was expressed in the previous centuries, you will be disfellowshipped if you don't disfellowship the people we are calling out. So now, friend of my enemy is now my enemy, if you will, and we have a spread of disfellowshipping, of uh, fracturing of Christian fellowship, all in the name of this harsh notion of holiness and righteousness, where grace has been uh, removed from the equation. And when you pull grace out, what do you have is a very uncharitable, graceless situation. You have exactly what we are not getting from God, who does exhibit grace toward us. Uh, so, in essence, when we act this way, we're like the uh, the guy who is beating on someone for owing us, you know, ten talents or whatever it might be, when we've been forgiven a thousand talents. This doesn't sit well with God because it is hypocritical. Okay. But I could hear people responding to what you just said as saying, well, then I guess we have no standards. Then everything goes. We shouldn't criticize anybody for any view. I don't think that's what you're saying, and I don't think that's the way to approach the issue. No, we need uh, open, gracious discussion, unless it's an area where the, you know, the core doctrines of the faith are under attack. That's a different story. But we are entering an age, Andrea, where nuance is lost, which means to say that a complicated argument doesn't get any traction because we want it to be as expressed in a tweet, 144 characters or 288 characters. If you can't say it in that short, it's not worth talking about or thinking about. It has to be the bite-sized stuff. And when you reduce things to bite-sized stuff, then the response is also equally unthinking and brief and short and explosive. And uh, in this case, uh, it kneecaps us on the area of fellowship. So if you want to win someone over to your position, it's not by attack. 
it rarely is. Uh, it's uh, why we think that is bizarre, but there is a way to present the, the truth. In fact, Paul lays out some ways of uh, uh, restoring and, and rebuking folks in his letters, you know, as one would a father, he says in one case for the elderly, there's an approach that should be taken. Uh, we don't provoke people to anger in our approach. If not our own children, then why would we want to do that with someone we're trying to reach? And so we have to know where the line should be drawn and where we can have some liberty and nuance allowed. Because we are measuring ourselves by how close we adhere to our own personal standard. By the way, we are also hypocrites on that point. That's a different topic, but we'll get into it. <laughs> because right. every time the church has entered into this super righteous, super pure thing, the hypocrisy went through the roof and the sins increased. So this notion that being super pure gets us where we're going to go is actually a falsehood. It's been historically falsified for 21 centuries. It's because it's not God's way of doing things. Where grace is multiplied, we get somewhere. There is a road ahead, and there's a path forward for fellowship and for renewal, for peacemakers, uh, as uh, the Beatitudes put it. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they are being able to bring union, union when there's disunion. But this approach is, uh, is, is saying we need to prioritize purity uh, and our standard of purity over above what God's grace may call us to do in terms of forbearance toward others. By the way, it's been a good case made that in 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter, that that word translated love or charity is actually better translated forbearance. And that is a huge change of orientation on our part. We are not forbearing when we're going down these paths. These um, extreme measures should be reserved for the most extreme cases, and we don't do that. Martin, I think you're correct in pointing the fact that grace, and specifically God's sovereign grace, is what's missing. But one of the things that I think happens to people when they're embroiled in a family dispute, a doctrinal dispute, or whatever, it's very hard to imagine that someone's going to argue a position that they don't hold as being very significant. So for some people, it might have to do with how you dress. Other people might have to do with certain practices within the church. With other people, it might have to do with upsetting the traditions that have always been this way with a particular group. So assuming that people really do hold these views and they hold them as very important, how do you actually step into the other person's shoes and figure out why they might be saying what it is they're saying. Well, this is where communication comes in. Uh, we're very poor at it. Social media and tweets and computers have harmed our ability to communicate uh, with one another with any kind of meaning. Dr. Rashtuni has pointed out when he discussed the matter of uh, malpractice insurance and for doctors, he says that when communication goes down, litigation replaces it. And so a litigious spirit, a, a kind of lawsuit orientation and attack mode comes into play when communication fails. And so we have to relearn communication and communication presumes communion. That is a connection with others. If we don't feel that, we don't have that because we're not seeing them as God sees them. And of course, we're already suspicious going in. We already know all the problems with their position, the consequences, the, um, it reduces to an absurdity. But the irony is that in many cases, it might be they're wrong and you're wrong. Right. Neither, so we have two people both in the ditch. Uh, I'm reminded that uh, heavy hitters like Dr. Bonson and Dr. R.C. Sproul, they were debating uh, 
apologetic technique. And they both appealed to the moderator, Dr. DeWitt, said, who got, uh, who's expressing Calvin's position correctly? And he says, I think you're both wrong on Calvin. <laughs> so even the, the giants of the faith and theology can be mistaken in cases like this. Now, of course, everyone's going to have their champion, and it'll be those who say, no, no, Sproul was right, and, uh, or Bonson was right, because we took sides. But DeWitt didn't take sides. He was looking at the, the core data. And all three took that graciously and even chuckled at it because they realized their limitations. People make the joke that Dirty Harry says a man's got to know his limitations. But that's kind of intrinsic to a creature to realize they're limited. They're not gods. Right. And this, this is why Rush always goes to this verse in the 12th chapter of Job. Job tells his friends, no doubt uh, wisdom was born with you and will die with you guys. In other words, you guys are obviously the only source of valid wisdom, and when you die, it's gone. Uh, yes. it's, it was sarcastic, but it was sarcastic to underscore a point that their attitude was uh, tremendously arrogant in their approach to Job. They were just so certain that he must have done something terribly wrong to deserve the boils and the uh, disasters befalling his family, and none of that was true. Right. So let, let me just take you back to something you said, and I'd like to flesh it out a bit. Um, you said that this is something that goes back to the early centuries of the church, and it was actually in one of Dr. Rusjuni's position papers. He actually puts it under the idea of heresy, that this seeking ultimate perfectionism and not being willing to restore people who may have grievously sinned because, you see, we can't have them in our midst, ends up producing a pharisaical works outward religion as opposed to the uh, circumcision of the heart that the Lord speaks about. Right. The original form of this took place during persecutions in the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, first under Decius and uh, Valerian, and it took its name of Donatism uh, during the reign of uh, Diocletian and his persecutions. And when the, in the very first persecution, the state was demanding, turn over all your holy books, your scriptures, so we can burn them and destroy them. And so pastors had a choice. They could turn them over and protect themselves and their flocks, or uh, they could resist and be martyred and their flocks uh, uh, killed as well, the people. Uh, or they could fake it. The interesting thing is that some folks turned over some uh, heretical writings and said, here's our holy scriptures. You can burn these all you want. <laughs> so, But that was considered lying to the authorities. So they didn't get a break either. They protected the scriptures with a fraudulent approach to the state. But what happened is that when the persecution lifted, as they usually do, now what do we do with these pastors who capitulated to the state and turned over Bibles to be destroyed? And uh, the, the Catholic notion, uh, I'm using Catholic with lowercase c, not Roman Catholicism, uh, but the notion of the universal church was that grace needed to be extended to them unless you're in the exact same position. We have to look at their motives. And, and, and as Rushton, says, look at the whole man, the entire walk of that man to realize that this was a slip up, not a, a lapse like in Hebrews 6. Um, by the way, the word that they use for these pastors, the lapsed, is the exact same word used for the fall of Adam. So they, they were being depicted as bad as Adam's fall and as, and as grievous and as deadly to the faith. Therefore, they were not fit to be restored to leadership uh, for having uh, compromised with the state on any matters. And this repeated with Valerian, which I repeated with, uh, uh, under Diocletian, which were particularly severe. And so the question is, what do we do? The, some of the folks there, uh, pastors, 
they bribed officials to get a document that said they had uh, compromised and swore an oath to Caesar when they didn't. But that was considered by the purists as, no, nah, you still, you were sort of been martyred and killed because you're still alive and walking. We need to prevent you from becoming a pastor and resuming your pastorate again. So there's a big battle over who compromised so badly on the faith that they were no longer fit to lead Christ's flock. And uh, if you, that, and then the worst thing, as Dr. Rashtoni pointed out, was that the baptisms performed by these people were declared to be invalid, and by implication, the marriages they performed were invalid. So you couldn't know if your baptism or your marriage was valid until your pastor died in the faith. Therefore, the safest route to make sure that your uh, marriage is valid and you're not committing adultery because it's an invalid marriage is by shooting your pastor while he's still faithful. <laughs> Is that are you just saying that, or is that what they thought? Uh, this is my observation from the twenty first okay. century, because uh, people have gone this route in in various areas. Uh, you know, how do we know that? John Lofton mentioned this in the uh, postlude uh, to the book, The Great Christian Revolution, that Kelsey published. He actually brought news stories up of a man who killed his entire family because he says, right now. They're in the faith, they're in Christ, but there's so many evil satanic forces that if I let them into the world to grow up, they'll fall away and end up uh, in Satan's grasp, and the only way to save their souls is to shoot them. And so extreme measures are called for because that's where the slope goes uh, if you took it to its logical conclusion. Now, most people don't because they have some common sense, but they don't put that common sense back on the original position in the first place to rethink it. So... That is the problem, is that we had these uh, literal persecutions, and the question is, what do we do as a result of these persecutions? Right. Now, and then Constantine came in to upset everything with the Edict of the Milan in 313. And what happened then is interesting, because there's general hatred for Constantine, and therefore anything that he did is now looked askance, and he, and he worked against the Donatists. For example, he uh, said, okay, the, the par party that exhibits grace – I'll give their pastors, their clergy tax exemptions, but the Donatists, the purists who refuse to fellowship, uh, they lose their tax exemption. You tried to do this to try to persuade them, if you will, but they only thought that that meant more persecution meant they were more righteous and they were more confirmed in their rebellion, if you want to call it that, or their uh, adhering to what they regarded as uh, pure Christianity, which required that uh, every pastor be pure from day one to their death. Uh, and if it wasn't, then, of course, we have a big problem. We have to rebaptize a bunch of people, remarry them, have to recharge them with adultery, et cetera, et cetera. And their right. children become bastards as a result of this uh, theology. So this is where theology, when you take it to its conclusions, it elevates man and what he does as opposed to what God, to Jesus Christ and what he has done. And this is where, uh, where the flaw was because Constantine wanted to have the churches unified because he thought it was good for the state. And, and uh, so he made some moves he probably shouldn't have made, but but fortunately, Augustine got involved, and uh, his influence, this took 100 years to straighten this out, finally put the official uh, seal on Donatism as a movement. He declared it as a schismatic movement, and they just were separate, but then they had these other notions about baptism, which made it a heresy, if you will. And therefore, it uh, may not be officially sanctioned today, but it comes back in different forms because we have compromise and we have people who uh, capitulate to the state. 
you know, right now it's, hey, did you tell your, did you close your church? Wow. I don't even see how you're still a pastor. You don't deserve to be pastor. Exactly. Oh, did, oh, did you take a shot? Wow. You sure compromised on that, et cetera, et cetera. Now I have strong feelings about these two areas, but we have to acknowledge that we're revisiting this thing because at least no one was being killed for it. Uh, well, maybe some would object to that <laughs> considering hazards right. related to uh, so certain medication routes. But the point was, you were literally faced with death back in the third, fourth, fifth centuries under those uh, Roman uh, per, uh, persecutors and following on, even with Julian, et cetera. Right. So we have a whole string of guys who were bad news, and uh, the church decided to punish those who didn't respond like they thought they should. And this goes now to every layman, because now your position has to be pure and unadulterated, because I can list a whole set of litanies of things that are bad about your position. And therefore, uh, our future fellowship is at stake, depending, depending what you tell me in the next one minute. Right. And that's how it kind of boils down to it. So Dr. Rashtuni has always stressed that if we have a debate between orthodoxy and harmony, that orthodoxy has to triumph, because if we're not standing on God's word as he said it. However, you also pointed out that there were a lot of separatist movements that then came about because they were going to be pure. And he's also observed in many places that it doesn't take long for separatist movements to then have their own problems. And then people are seeking to separate out. So what would you say is the patient and godly and forbearing way when you have a disagreement that you think is big and important, and you don't feel like you should budge from it, what's the correct or a correct road to take to help make sure that you're not being a modern day donatist? Well, I think you need to lead by example. And this is our big failure because we lead with our lip, but not with our lives. It still can get you in trouble with the purist. One of the folks that was uh, in the Donatist movement was Tychonius. Now, he's still remembered in church history because he was a great exegete, great scholar of Scripture. And the more he studied Scripture, the more he realized that grace is critical. He came to the same conclusion that Reshtuni came, that if your speech is not salted with grace, then your righteousness turns into self-righteousness. It just cannot help but deteriorate into self-righteousness. And the louder you get, the more self-righteous you become, even though you pretend or think are deluded to think that you are actually uh, pres uh, the pre preserver of orthodoxy. Why do I mention Tychonius? Because he actually then challenged his own Donatist brethren on biblical grounds. He walked through the scriptures and explained it, and they charged him with contumacy and excommunicated him for his trouble. So you have to total wine in Donatism. Uh, even your best scholars get thrown out. Like we mentioned once, uh, it might be that a valedictorian from a major dispensational seminary, and seminary when he became a Christian Reconstructionist, was also tossed out and lost his credits. So because we didn't toe the line. So towing the line, and whose line is it anyway, to quote a TV show? The issue here is uh, human rules, church rules tend to dominate. And that's what was going on back then. It's going on back now because we're determining on what grounds do I have or deny fellowship and on how, how much time will I grant this dialogue with a person to grow uh, and come to an understanding of each other's views. And that's where it gets interesting because I've had certainly discussions where the other side didn't change their view for maybe a decade. But when they did, they became convicted of the position. Now, what if I had been going in 
uh, like a bull in a china shop and attacking them and criticizing them with withering a brutal text, if you will, ju- just nailing them left and right, and then publicly flaming them, as they say, uh, making the, uh, their name of. I wasn't. I'm, one of the things we're supposed to do, by the way, is to protect reputations. That's kind of the uh, what is supposed to happen in Matthew 18. We go to the person first directly before we expand it to a couple witnesses, before it becomes a public matter, uh, if it's a personal affront. And so this principle still applies here. We should try to try to appeal, win our brothers over uh, with forbearance. And forbearance means patience. It means that we're going to, not going to call in the marker right this instant. We're not going to set a deadline. I've seen this happen. We say we're going to solve this problem by six o'clock tonight, or it's going to go to an excommunication hearing. Say, right. well, what what if it would have gone been solved by ten p.m.? Why would we set this arbitrary thing? Oh, because human rules are there and people are impatient. So patience is not a virtue we see a lot of these days. That's very obvious because of the TLDR problem. Too long didn't read, and therefore everyone's position that is nuanced that takes some time to explain, we're not going to be patient with it. Uh, we need to relearn patience. Thank God God is so patient with us because if we <laughs> use anything like we are to each other in terms of patience, we're in a bad way. I do think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we live in an instant society. You know, I have a question, I can go to a search engine and find my answer. Or if we watch media, things resolve in 30 minutes or 60 minutes or an hour and a half. And if we applied that same rule in terms of how forbearing and patient God was with us, we'd be considerably humbled. And so that's part of what I'm talking about. I don't mind that people have very strong views on something. I think I would like somebody with strong views rather than somebody who is wishy-washy and lukewarm. But with a strong view comes the idea that sanctification is progressive, and I don't get to decide where you are on that process. Plus, we have a luxury that we're not under direct attack right now. Interestingly, in the history of this Donatist movement in the 5th century, when there was common danger from the Vandals attacking, all of a sudden the Donatists and the Catholic Party, if you will, they joined forces against a common enemy. At that point, they realized they couldn't afford not to have the other folks uh, fighting alongside them because they faced a threat in common. And all of a sudden, they were able to look at, look um, around or set aside their differences for the sake of a common enemy. Let's think of this in terms of all the um, law cases, the suits, the lawsuits that Dr. Rashtuni was a uh, witness for, uh, First uh, First Amendment, a witness when Christians are on trial for the churches were being shuttered, the Christian schools are being closed, et cetera, et cetera. Rashtuni was attacked because they said, what are you doing protecting those Jehovah's Witnesses, say, or a, or a Mormon or some other cult? Why are you doing that? said, you, you know, why would you protect their, their, when the state goes against them? And his position was very clear. The state is setting precedents to go against Christians, so we have to meet the attack because this is going to be a common enemy. Um, therefore, we need to go dust off our weapons and, and ride out to battle here in these court uh, courtrooms across America. But there were those who were purists who said, Rushdorney protected the Jehovah's Witnesses when they were taken to court for X, Y, or Z. Right. He told one story where the people he testified for afterwards, when it had a positive resolution, actually attacked him for something because he wasn't pure enough when he had just at his own expense come to help them. Yeah. 
of course, when I criticize you for your position, that puts me on top. I am the arbiter of doctrine, and you are the person who needs to knuckle under to my presentation and my denunciation of your false, deficient views. So it certainly lends itself to human pride and hubris for us to go down this path. It's not without reason that uh, Dr. Warfield, his single largest study he ever published was a thousand-page study in two volumes on perfectionism. It occupies about one-fifth, 20% of his uh, published output in his complete writings that Oxford published. That tells you something that this got his attention, that this is tendency in human beings to assume perfectionism, that they're capable of it or have it or so close to it or closer enough, closer to it than their brethren, that they're fit to clean house and do other things. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I do have a question on that. The Lord says to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. But I do think people misunderstand the definition of that, assuming that perfectionism is a virtue. I've heard people say, I'm such a perfectionist. And they're sort of confessing it, but they're also sort of patting themselves on the back when they say it. Would you talk about what the Lord means when he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? This particular case, and this goes even farther back into the Old Testament, it's the notion of being mature, coming into your own as a fully-fledged man, all your senses exercised to know good and evil. That's what is involved in that as opposed to flawless, because we are not flawless, and we cannot be flawless. Even our greatest righteous works are like filthy rags, so that's impossible to gain that. But maturity is possible. And the marks of maturity are very, very clear in Scripture, and they don't include perfectionism. By the way, the negative connotation for that term comes because nowadays it's associated with uh, obsessive compulsive orders and dysregulated emotions right? Uh, and uh, uh, something wrong with your mind that you can't let go of something until it's completely right. Now, we seem to be okay if doctors are perfectionists, ironically, or if people who put uh, space shuttles in the sky are perfectionists because we realize that there's high risks involved. Uh, but that term gets used in, in an improper way and not in a biblical way. Uh, that Certainly, there is perfection in God, and so God is a model for us. And the way to, to be mature in our approach and fully of our, because remember, we're made in his image, and therefore, that's where we want to go. And But if anyone says they don't sin, then the truth's not in him, and he's a liar. So claims to perfectionism don't fly. Unfortunately, there's plenty of folks out there who claim to be perfect already. I would believe it if they're dead, because I think <laughs> right, the, right. At, at that point, a born-again Christian, in fact, is uh, does pass uh, away from uh, everything, that, and he's sanctified 100% at that point. But in the meantime, it's a process. It's a process that we seem to think we should guide someone else along. And I think this is where Rushdoni has some interesting comments on discipleship movements. He felt that they were misplaced because when you're trying to disciple somebody else, oftentimes that means that the Holy Spirit is being elbowed aside as inadequate and deficient for leading them into all truth. And I am now the surrogate Holy Spirit doing that work. And if for some reason you're not following the instructions I'm giving you and the rules I'm providing uh, and the uh, battle plan that I've laid out uh, and this amount of quiet time, X, X amounts a week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the whole list has to be fulfilled, uh, then there's something wrong with you and uh, your, your faith is questioned. 
And so these artificial standards, yardsticks, start to multiply when people are setting human rules up in lieu of the word of God. It's always difficult to stay on the straight and narrow, although that's what we're told to do. I could suppose people would hear you saying, oh, so you're for being more ecumenical, that we accept all comers who say they believe in Jesus, regardless of what they espouse Jesus stood for, etc. So are you talking about being more ecumenical? Not in a, not in a ecclesiastical sense, no. Uh, I think what happens there is that we drop doctrinal standards in order to uh, reach across the aisle. There's a, there's a legitimate and illegitimate way to reach across the aisle, and a compromise that might be acceptable that's not doctrinal might work. For example, uh, I will certainly work with premillennialists uh, and others in terms of the abortion battle, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to uh, send money to Israel uh, to get a temple built over there. So I'm going to draw some lines there uh, simply because uh, my understanding is very, very different. But I also recognize a common enemy that uh, allows us to work together shoulder to shoulder. When you And that's kind of the point. What is the work that God's calling us to do? And that phrase shoulder to shoulder does appear in scriptures in Zephaniah 3.9 that when the people uh, have a common uh, goal, which is God's kingdom, they can work shoulder to shoulder. And that's a, a very beautiful thing. And God can author that. But today's notion of ecumenicism is uh, we can certainly get along with you as long as you drop all your positions. And of course, at that point, you get Christless Christianity. This is exactly what's going on with the modernist crisis at the turn of the 20th century. What Warfield was attacking so strongly with the liberal tint in scripture was to say, you know, we cannot have fellowship when Christ is no longer in the church. You know, that's not a Christian church at that point. So once we recognize that a church is a Christian church by a generous understanding of these terms in scripture, uh, and fellowship should not be cut short, uh, even though we might be working toward different things. Sometimes this is God's purpose. God did not give agreement to Barnabas and Paul regarding Mark for some time. You know, each of them had a different agenda and it applied differently to Mark, but they were able to come together at the end of the process. Uh, but it, they were in sharp disagreement before. And I don't think that ecumenicism would have worked for them to be forced one way or the other. This is God's way to say, okay, I'm going to decentralize the situation. I'm going to put Mark under Barnabas for a while, let Paul do his thing, and then bring them back together later uh, so that Paul can acknowledge that Barnabas has, in fact, uh, made quite a, uh, a useful uh, man out of Mark. That's a good perspective, and I always like going back to Scripture and seeing the example of our forebears. But I remember, and I wish I remembered where it was, but I think it was um, in one of maybe the word in season where Rushduni talked about in times where people were had a much closer community and they would go to the market, people who had strong disagreements with each other, there actually was a practice where they had to walk around the market arm in arm, showing that even though they had disagreements, they weren't going to be divisive. How would you think that would play out with people who are feeling very much at odds over certain points they think are important, but they want to demonstrate that they haven't negated the other's relationship to Christ? And that's a remarkable example of grace, because if it's a matter of justice, like someone thinks they've been defrauded, 
that's a big deal to walk arm in arm around the marketplace with someone that you believe is your enemy. And yet we're told to do good things unto our enemies, even, you know, that we would thereby be putting burning coals, uh, glowing coals on their head. In other words, conscience would be uh, triggered as a result of doing good to our enemies. But it showed what was important to the community that 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 we might have a, a disagreement among us right now, but we'll be able to work past it ultimately because these agreements, these disagreements come and go. Very rarely are they nurtured as a grudge perpetually, though that can happen. And uh, it happens, by the way, in, in clans and families all the time. There's something about that that uh, just brings out the worst in people. And the church in Christ is trying to bring out the best in people. But what is the common thing? Grace is what paved the road for them to go arm in arm around. Uh, and usually that gave them an opportunity to talk. And this is where community communication, again, comes into play. Sometimes that can be facilitated by a peacemaker. That's why Christ puts such emphasis on peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. We have very few people who are peacemakers. By the way, peacemakers oftentimes <laughs> are, are hated and rejected. You know, you have your nerve. You obviously are taking the other side if you think there's any kind of common ground. No, I'm looking to find a way to get to peace here in this situation, this, this breach. But it's a little bit different than the uh, dispute of the Donatists, which had to do with church leaders and uh, church rules being emphasized over the word of God. But it has a part to play in perfectionism, because when communion is broken and community is broken, uh, then it's like to your tents, O Israel, as the call was. We're all each man unto himself, right? Every man for himself. At that point, you get a very Darwinian situation, which is not scriptural at all. And that's that's a crying shame because we're called to be unified. And certainly the Lord's priestly prayer emphasizes this, how they will know that you love one another. And if uh, rather than if you hate one another and are un, absolutely uncompromising in your spirit against one another, goodness gracious, why was Jesus talking to that woman at the well in the first place in John 4? But what did he open up by opening up his and talking to her? Yeah, there was more evangelical activity in two days in Samaria than all of Israel combined, right? just because he was willing to talk and communicate. That, in other words, someone that the Donatists said, don't talk to them, he talked to them, and the world was changed as a consequence. So, so just you know, that's why they say only Nixon could go to China, as the saying goes, in 1973, when he shook hands with Chow and Lai and met with uh, the dictator uh, Mao Zedong. We don't know what came of it, but the point is to reach across the aisle like that changes the chasm of incomprehension between us. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding that once it's grasped, uh, can be solved. But until you communicate, the situation is going to fester and get worse, and resentment grows over time. The only way to get past that is to open up and start the process. First person to reach out his hand and say, let's talk about this, and the other person does the same. But you see, back in the fourth, fifth centuries, there wasn't going to be any talk because the standard was already laid down. And people, once they laid that standard down, they were unwilling to retract it because now they're committed. Now they already made a public stand and would look bad for them, bad optics for them to uh, suddenly go, look like they're going soft on uh, compromisers, the lapsed, as they call them. This got so amusing at one point. There was a pastor, uh, Peter, who was a patriarch. And uh, he was not a Donatist, and the Donatists were attacking him, saying he's a compromiser. Don't listen to this guy. Well, Peter got his head 
uh, cut off. He was decapitated by the state, at which point the Donatists had the uncomfortable uh, situation that by their own rules, he was a good guy because he was moderated. So they had to retract their negative things <laughs> about Peter. So sometimes all it takes to, def- to uh, conquer a, um, uh, a fight with somebody is for you to die. Well, let's talk about the idea of optics and narratives. This only matters if you have um, a reliance on media to make your point. If you can say something louder or you've got more people who are listening to you than the other guy. But so long as the goal is reconciliation and restoration, there are a lot of things you can take from other people. Uh, I've had people comment, like, I don't know how you have patience with this group of people or these people. They're actually insulting you and some of the things they say or write about. And my answer was, yeah, okay. But I don't want it to end there so that we're polarized. You know, a lot of the things, criticisms that people can make of us are sometimes true. So it's not like we have to worry about our reputation. I think we have to remember that we're ambassadors for Christ and our reputations are not as important as Christ's. Exactly. It's not without reason that the proverb says, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So uh, many times, some of my dear friends now, we were at loggerheads before, but I would overlook the offenses and continue the conversation and communication that was gracious got somewhere. Uh, it, it, it had a hook in the other individual and we were able to communicate and, and resolve things. By the way, there's an example of this that's just, I think, almost amusing in the Old Testament. It's Shimei. Shimei was uh, walking along the rooftops following David and his contingent. He was throwing rocks and sticks and dirt at David and cursing him. And uh, David's tenants were saying, should we go up there and take care of this guy? And David says, no, let him curse. And David knew that though he was guiltless of the thing he was being cursed for by Shimei, he certainly was guilty of a lot of other things. Right. So David was a big enough guy to let a guy throw sticks and stones and curse him out publicly and keep walking and just take it. Most of us say, oh, my reputation, I would never allow that because we're more interested in how we look to the world rather than how we look to God. But David was concerned what God thought of him and what God was seeing. And so he overlooked the offense uh, and God, that is what God expects of us. So we have these wonderful examples in Scripture. Of course, Christ is even the, the, the ultimate example of taking abuse and praying for his abusers. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's, uh, we should always do exactly that because it depends on other circumstances, but that should be the model. We should be more worried about what God thinks than what people think. However, if your God is very small, then public per- per- uh, perception of you becomes very, very big. And then you dig in your heels and you uh, uh, double down. Right. And, and of course, peace is not possible under these circumstances because both sides will dig in their heels because the whole world is watching. In fact, we, we see this wrong side of history. The whole world is watching. And no one ever says God is watching because right. God expects a very different conduct than what we seem to be promoting or falling into. And it's very, very easy to protect yourself and to be self-defensive and self-righteous. Uh, it's very, very difficult to take abuse like David did or be like the proverb that says, you know, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. If that's what the scripture says. We have to say, by me closing my mouth and accepting your attack on me, uh, 
God's glorified in that, and I should be rejoicing that this is an interesting way for me to glorify God by accepting abuse at your hand, at your lips. Right. But we don't. We, we counterattack and make it worse. And so we, we deny ourselves that glory to God and our participation in it. How sad that our perfectionism gets in the way of actually true being perfect like God is. So the issue here is sovereign grace. Can you imagine, Martin, what it would have been like for the Christians to lament what was happening with this Pharisee, Saul, who was going around trying to kill him and trying to draw lines in the sand of what's your view of this guy, not knowing that in the not too distant future, God was literally going to knock him off his high horse and change the man. So I think if we commit to the idea that God is sovereign and none of this is out of his control, we can be patient with those that we have some severe disagreements with, but never negate the fact that God is thoroughly able and willing to get his children on the right track. Absolutely. Uh, and that sovereign grace is so important because while we were yet enemies, God reached out and was good to us and did something for us. So we need to take the same stance with even those that we regard as enemies. You know, you'll be always friendly toward your friends, but a man who's friendly toward his enemies is a person who's going to convert some of those enemies to God's friends, just being the human vehicle for that. So I think we need to acknowledge that aspect of it. So I certainly hope that those listening who may have situations like we've alluded to or know of other situations will recognize that being faithful in these matters is just as important as being faithful in other matters and that we can serve as peacemakers, whether we're the target of somebody else's upset or that we witness it among friends so that we can see a restoration. And I think you'll agree with me, Martin, that reconstructionists and theonomists in general could use a good injection of grace and mercy and bring it down to the level of dealing with members of the body of Christ. Right. I'm always reminded of when Nicodemus speaks with the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, the rulers, about Jesus, and they kind of saying, are you also a Galilean? You know, they, they, they challenge him on that. And they also say this, and as for this mob, cursed are they. So they had very, very little interest be, uh, except in protecting their own fiefdoms. By the way, when they say that, are you also a Galilean? We see here in the first century AD the exact same behaviors as we have today, which is to throw a label on someone to attack them. You're a heretic. Your position is a heresy. You're a heretic. And by the way, the second I throw the label on you, I don't have to talk to you anymore. You've already been put in the pigeonhole right here in this cubbyhole, and uh, which means ignore, neglect, and abandon. You see how simple that is and how evil it is at the same time, because God has not abandoned us in the same way. He sure could have, and with justice, is the only person who can abandon all of us to our just desserts. But instead, he intervenes in that process, and we need to be perfect like him in this regard, that we reach across and that we are good to our enemies, and we try to recover them. And uh, for those who, are, who can't, well, there is a place for imprecatory psalms, no question about it. But we certainly should not do that uh, at the appropriate time and not as a first resort uh, when we're communicating with others. You know, broken fellowship is a tragedy, especially when it is one preventable or can be reversed back to full fellowship, but it's only people's resistance 
or pride that prevents them from making that extra step. And that's going to be catastrophic to Christian Reconstructionists if we fall in the same trap of using labels, quick, easy, facile labels against yes. one another. Well, it reminds me of the expression, and I used to hear this repeatedly from my parents and grandparents, and maybe this is, if we look at the body of Christ, the whole idea of cutting off your nose to spite your face, I think uh, Christians could really realize or should really realize that if you're talking about the body of Christ, your, your goal is not to sever yourself from a part of your body. Right. And all this talk about I'm going to condemn your doctrinal position. What's our calling? It's laid out there, right, in Hebrews 5. To study to show yourself, well, it's also in Paul. Study to show yourself a workman approved, not ashamed. And so we need to continue to study to show ourselves as approved workmen. We need to be advancing into teacher status. And by the way, how how does one teach others? That is a ministry in its own right. That's why folks like Sproul and Bonson debating something on a friendly basis, that exemplified how you could reach across the aisle over a dispute and not simply uh, vilify one another. We have an accuser already in Satan, but the good news is that Christ is standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he intercedes for us. Why are we not interceding for one another, and heart, uh, why are we not heartbroken that we have broken fellowship? with people that we used to look up to, but now we regard them as our enemies. Can that be rectified? Well, if you say, well, if they change, well, how about you start the process and maybe they'll respond? Because if you let down your guard, perhaps they would do the same thing. They would reciprocate. But it's a process. You know, so no one said being a peacemaker is easy, but it is the calling, and that's what God is to us. He reconciled us to him. Now, God's law is the mediator between man and man to reconcile man to one another. And I think that's a good place to to wrap this up. I would encourage listeners to go to Dr. Rush Dooney's position papers that are in the third volume of the three-volume series called An Informed Faith. And he not only talks about donatism, he talks about a lot of other heresies that maybe people aren't even familiar with but we'll see some semblance of things that have happened today and are happening today and will give us a greater appreciation for the necessity to stay in God's word. Listeners, as always, you can contact us through our email, outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And Martin, thanks for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.